Romans chapter 4. 4 and verse 15. says, because the law worketh wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression. I'm really trying to get through more than one verse, but I couldn't get through more than one verse. So, But let's back up a minute and just kind of review what we've seen so far. Obviously, Paul's writing to the Roman Christians there. He says, for I'm ready to preach the gospel to you that are at, at, in Rome also. He was writing to Christians, and he said, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you. So therefore, remember, this was a year ago, but the gospel is for believers as well as unbelievers. And that's what Paul's doing right here. He's writing to Romans Christians, and he's writing his exposition of the gospel. He's explaining what the gospel is to them in a more than just a, a surface-level gospel even though that's all it takes to get saved, right? To be saved, you must believe in the gospel. You believe the surface-level gospel, and then Paul, what he's doing is expounding on it and teaching us more and more about the gospel, the depths of the gospel. But before he did all that, remember, he started with the bad news. And he showed in Romans 1, 2, and 3, first to the Gentiles were all guilty before God. Then he goes to the Jew in chapter 2 and shows that they're all guilty before God. Then he kind of ends up in chapter 3 and just goes over Jew and Gentile. You guys are all guilty before God combined. And then he declares justification by faith alone at the end of chapter 3 there. And then remember in our context here in Romans chapter 4, what does he do? He jumps right to, to say, in case you had an argument that justification wasn't by faith alone, let me show you Abraham who was justified by faith alone. And remember, we, we touched on three things that Paul brings out here. He brings out, he wasn't justified by works, he wasn't justified by circumcision, and he wasn't justified by law. And Paul proves that to us. And then we get to our text here, and he says, because the law works wrath. Why wasn't he justified by law? Because the law works wrath. So my first point here is called the exceeding fullness of sin. And we must remember the context, like I just mentioned. These texts here, this, this text here isn't separate from the rest of the context. That's part of the hard, harder part about going verse by verse is you might deal with one verse. And it might be easy to just take this verse and, and, and jump off a cliff and, and teach a whole message about something that the context actually isn't teaching. So we won't, don't want to separate this from the context. Paul is still dealing with the same subject here. And what is that subject? Justification by faith alone. That he laid out for us at the end of chapter 3. He's dealing with this subject that justification comes not from the law, not by works, not by circumcision, but through faith alone. He's still proving that. And he's, he's proving it from every facet that he can. He deals with this over here and this over here. And we, that's what we're seeing right now. That's why... Verse by verse, week by week, we're seeing he's dealing with a different, sub, different topic over here, but he's still dealing with justification by faith alone. So he's not only proving it, but he's also disproving the opposite, right? And see, that's what a good teacher does. 
They don't just state something and expect you to believe it. But we see a lot of that going on today, right? They simply, people simply make a statement and expect you to believe it, and if you don't, right, you're stupid, you're dumb, you're a conspiracy theorist, or whatever they want to call you. Because I said this, therefore you must believe it. That's not how you learn, though, right? That's not how you learn. You don't learn by just parroting somebody else's argument, somebody else's statement. You don't just learn by that. You learn by examining their statement against what you know and against all the other evidence out there. Then you make a decision if that statement is right. Not simply because you like that person. You like the person that said it, therefore it must be right. Is that what the Bereans did with the Apostle Paul? Did they, did they just believe the Apostle Paul because he was cool and charismatic? We like this guy, so everything he says must be right. No, what did they do? It says they searched the scriptures daily to see if those things were true. They were truly disciples, learners. That's what a disciple is, a learner, not a parrot. But back to our thought here. Paul is still teaching justification by faith alone, but in so deal. In so doing, he's also dealing with the negative of it, the opposite of it. And that's part of what we're seeing here. Justification by faith alone is true because the law works wrath. Or the law brings about wrath. What does that mean, though? What does it mean when you read that and it says, the law works wrath? I don't know what it says. What does it say in the ESV? For the law brings wrath. For the law brings wrath. We've seen this before, so it shouldn't be new to us, though. But the law wasn't given for man to have a checklist in order to be saved, right? God didn't give them 613 commands so they could go down this checklist and say, I've did this, I've done this. The quite, quite the opposite was true by why the law was given, right? God didn't give the law hoping that man would keep it. It wasn't that I gave you the law, oh, I hope that you will keep it so you'll be justified. He gave the law for more than one reason, though. And the first, the one I'll mention here, he gave the law to the nation of Israel so they would be separate from the rest of the world until the Messiah came through them. Why? Because the Messiah was going to be a Jew, right? So God gave the Jews a law to keep, to keep them separate from the rest of the world. This is part of the reason why they weren't to intermarry. Jews weren't to marry Gentiles. Why? Because if they all intermarried with Gentiles, there would be no more Jews, right? And the Messiah, the prophecy of the Messiah was coming through the line of David. So in other words, there's a portion of the law that the Jews had that the Gentiles didn't have. And it separated them from the Gentiles. This was the middle wall partition that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2. He says there's an enmity. There's a middle wall partition between the, the Jew and the Gentile. And what happened when Christ came? He did away with it. There was no more middle wall partition. Mm -hmm. He made us all one man in Christ. And another reason why God gave us the law is our reason here, and it's to show the exceedingfulness of sin. It was to bring out that you cannot obey. In case you thought you could keep the ten, here's 613. Even though you never kept the ten in the first place. Right? It was to show the exceedingfulness of sin. It was to bring out that you cannot obey. It was by law. Remember we already dealt with this. It was by law 
that they had a knowledge of sin. Right? That was the law gave us a knowledge of sin. And it's not as though they thought they were innocent before God, before the law was written, right? I mean, did Cain think it was okay to kill his brother? He knew it was a sin. He knew it was a sin to kill his brother. Did Adam know it was a sin to eat from the tree? Oh, he knew it was a sin. But that was before the Mosaic Law, wasn't it? But that when that law came, it was to further define sin and give you a knowledge of it. And by knowing about it, do you think your thought was, okay, well, now I know this is sin, so I ought to do it, right? Well, I didn't know this was sin before, but now that I know it's sin, I'm going to stop. That's not what we did, was it? That's not what we do today. It still is. When God has given us laws, we say, oh, now I want to keep it. No. We break it. Our heart wants to break it, right? There's a, there's a, a picture I saw a long time ago on Facebook. and There's this like big, long pipe going out into the ocean. And it said, stay off the pipe. There's a sign on the pipe that says, stay off the pipe. And there's 100 people standing on the pipe. You know, they probably would have never even thought to step on the pipe if you would have put a sign up there. Why don't you put a sign that says, stay off? All of a sudden, you want to get on it. Don't touch. Ooh, now I want to touch it. There's something wrong with our hearts, though, right? That's, that's in our hearts. We desire to disobey. We don't desire to obey. That's the problem. That was the problem with humanity is not that they desired to obey, so God gave them more law so they would obey more. It was that we have a desire to disobey. And when more law is given, guess what happens? We disobey more. There's something wrong with the human heart. We know this, right? Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. But the world tells us to follow your heart. Don't follow your heart. Your heart is a liar. Follow the word of God. We have no desire to do what is right if we're unregenerate. I mean, before we're saved, there is no desire to obey God. None. But Jeremy, there's, there's unbelievers out there that do good stuff all the time, right? Do good stuff all the time. To, and they help people out all the time, right? Isn't that true? We can look out here and see all this good stuff that people are doing. Unbelievers are doing. They're serving others more than themselves, right? But the question is why? Maybe, yes, they are serving others more than themselves. But why? Is it to fool themselves? You can serve somebody else for yourself, right? Is it for themselves? Is it so they feel better about themselves? Oh, I feel so good because I helped so-and-so today. Well, that's sin. What about, is it for the other person? You just want to serve that other person? You know what? That's still sin. That's called idolatry. Or is it for Christ? That's true obedience. That's what the unbeliever doesn't do. It's, it's true obedience is obeying to glorify God. It's obeying to lay down your life for Christ. The world may do a lot of worldly good, but unless it's for Christ and His glory, it's nothing but filthy rags and dung, right? Then we just deal with this the other week. And the law shows us this. When it says, whatsoever you do, do unto the glory of God, that's law. That's, that's actually, that's from the New Testament. 
but it goes back to the Decalogue in the Old Testament that you should have no gods before me, right? Whatsoever you do, do unto the glory of God. That's law. And that's something unbelievers don't do. And it's something as Christians that we fail to do too. Now we do do that sometimes, but we do fail at that too. The unbeliever never does that. It's that law shows us the unbeliever cannot obey God. The unregenerate cannot obey God. As the writer of Hebrews said, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Remember Paul here is proving the opposite of justification by faith alone because there would be some that would say that the law justifies. That I can keep the law to be just before God. But he clearly states that the law works wrath. The law shows the exceedingfulness of our sins, and it shows that every part of you wants to sin. Every part of you wants to sin. Paul showed us that in chapter 3, right? When he said, with the feet that are swift to shed blood, mouths full of cursing and bitterness, no understanding, no fear of God before their eyes, none doeth good. Sin is exceeding. It permeates us. This is what we call the doctrine of total depravity. Is that, that we sin. Our minds are sinful. Our hands are sinful. Our feet are sinful. Our mouths are sinful. We are totally depraved. And we can't go one day without it. Even when you're not doing it, you're thinking about it. So not only do we sin outwardly, we sin inwardly, right? Jesus said, it, it, um, it is said of old, thou shalt not commit adultery, right? But I say unto you that if you lust after a woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Where does that lust come from? Lust is not an outward sin, it's an inward sin. It says, you shall not, thou shalt not murder, but if you hate your brother, you're a murderer. Where's hatred at? Is it outside? It's inside of us. So we not only sin outwardly, we sin inwardly. We not only have sins of commission, which are sins that we actively do, but we also do sins of omission, which are those things that we ought to do and we don't do them. We as humans have a sin problem. That's the ultimate reality. We have a sin problem. Sin has killed more people than COVID ever will. But we don't make precautions for our sin, do we? We want to be more blatant about our sin in our culture, right? And that's another thing. We want, we want to put our sin out in front of everybody. But then when, with COVID, what do we do? We mask up. We stay away from people. We lock down. But sin will kill everybody. Our true pandemic in America is the exceedingfulness of sin. And we're proud of that. We are proud to be sinful people. We love our sin here. So much so that I guarantee you can't watch anything on television without it being put in front of you. And we pay for that. I pay you to put sin in front of my eyes. Everywhere you turn today is pushed in front of you. Go out in the culture. It's all over. Everywhere. Because it's good? Absolutely not. Because our world loves darkness rather than light. 
That's what the word says, right? That the world loved darkness rather than light. They love it and they want to force you to love it. And if you don't love it, all of a sudden you're a bigot. As if that word really hurts anybody's feelings, right? Or you're a racist. As if that word even means anything anymore. Because everything is racist now. Remember the last message when I quoted Polycarp? I talked about Polycarp, how he went to his, his death, burning. But before he did that, he said, It is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good to turn to what is evil. This is standing in the face of somebody who was about to have him slaughtered. He was about to die, and he knew he was about to die. Remember, he said, you have wild animals, bring them. He said, if you're not scared of wild animals, I'll set you on fire. This fire is quenchable. You know nothing about the fire that is unquenchable. This is him saying that in that face. It's unthinkable for me to repent from what is good to do what is evil. Be that guy, right? Don't be the guy that says that he's glad he's on the right side of history because he, the guy he voted for who is for the murder of children and theft through inflation and taxation, right? You're on the right side of history. That's the wrong side of history. So the law doesn't justify though, right? It shows the exceedingfulness of sin and it works wrath. It shows that you're completely sinful and it works wrath. It brings about wrath. Since the law shows our exceeding sin and brings about wrath, that's what the law does. It doesn't justify, but it condemns. It works wrath. Now, I know we know this, but I must bring this out. This isn't talking about the wrath of men. When it says the law works wrath, it's not talking about the wrath of men. It's not as though you disobey this law and the wrath of man is going to come to get you. Though some of that could be true, right? When you break God's law, sometimes the wrath of man does come. For instance, if you stole something from me, maybe I might have some wrath to come back at you, right? I, I, I shouldn't, but that wrath won't be that bad. It's not going to be like kidnapping Liam Neeson's daughter or anything. <laughs> and his wrath, even that, that wrath is going to be nothing compared to what the wrath that this is talking about. The wrath to come if you're outside of Christ. That wrath is called the wrath of the Almighty God. The wrath of the Almighty God. Now you may all honestly think, oh yes, but I'm mighty. And you may well be mighty, right? But you're not almighty. Almighty is the one who holds sway over all things. He's the ruler of all. He's a sovereign, omnipotent one. The one that has said he is a consuming fire. The one that spoke the world into existence. God said, let there be light. And there was light. Not only did he speak it into existence, it says he upholds the world by the word of his power. This is the one you're going to face. It's not me. It's not the police officer out there. It's not the president. It's not anybody here. If you're, uh, if you're actively breaking God's law and you're seeking justification from that law... That's the wrath of the one you will face. This is the one who says, Thou fool, tonight your soul is required of you. 
I can't say that. God can. That was, that was scripture. He said, the guy that's laying up all this stuff in his barns, for it's, it looks like a picture of retirement. He's doing all this work to lay up all this stuff for, in his barn so he can live comfortably one day. And God says, thou fool, tonight is required. Your soul is required of thee. All that stuff you laid up means nothing now. It's his wrath. And it's not a light wrath. It's not, as I mentioned to Jason yesterday, it's not a light affliction which is but for a moment. You know, that's our promise as Christians. We have a light affliction which is but for a moment. No matter what it is, it's a light affliction which is but for a moment. This wrath of God, it's a heavy, heavy, crushing weight that has no end. It's not for a moment. It has no end. It's a wrath that would crush you like you would crush an ant. The picture actually from, I think it's Revelation 19 where it says the wrath of the Almighty God, it speaks of it being a wine press. He's crushing, his wrath is crushing like a wine press, which isn't like it just comes down and crushes. It's a slow turning wrath that pushes down. That's his wrath. There's a quote, and I can't think of it exactly, but it said that the millstone of God's wrath or God's justice turns slowly, but it grinds to, it, it grinds exceedingly. So it's not as though it's a real quick thing. It, it happens slowly, but it deals with every single last sin. This is the wrath that the law works. This is the wrath that will come to every single person who has broken God's law and also those that think they are justified by the works of the law. This wrath is never ending, eternal, never quenched. Never quenched. And this is why purgatory is such a, it's a heresy, but it's also more of an illogical, stupid doctrine. It doesn't make sense. It does not make sense in the face of sin. There can't be a holding cell until your sin is purged. It can't happen. Because what? What? One sin is eternal hell, right? One. Why? Because you've broken an eternal law of an eternal judge. Therefore, one sin would send you into hell forever. There's no way you can go off into purgatory and pay for that sin. There's never a time when that sin will be purged. There's nothing you can do to stop the wrath of God once you've crossed over into eternity. Just as there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, there's nothing that can separate you from the hatred and wrath of God if you die outside of Christ. So the question is, are you looking to the law for your justification before God? Are you looking to, I got baptized, I went to church, I paid my tithe, I did this, I did this, therefore God's going to let me into heaven. That's not how it works. That's the law. That, what that is is law. Saying, I did this, <laughs> is law. If you believe that, it's time to repent. Justification, which is standing just before God. God sees you as holy and perfect and righteous. It's only by faith alone. 
in Christ alone. Why? Because Christ fulfilled the law. He kept it. Every jot and tittle of it, right? Every single little pat, last dot of that old covenant was fulfilled by Jesus Christ. The same law that you broke every jot and tittle of. He fulfilled it. He kept it. You broke every single last bit of it. He said, well, no, I didn't. Well, I said, well, let's look at the scriptures because it says if you've broken, if you've kept the whole law yet offended one point, you're guilty of all of it. You broke it all. Yet he kept it all. Then paid for the sins of his people in that Roman tree, right? Soaking up that wrath that the law works, the law works wrath. He soaked up that wrath. Then rose from the grave, right? Defeating death. Do you believe that? If you believe anything that's said today, believe that. I want you to see something here too. It's not new, but it's needful. The law works wrath. Why? Because you broke it. And you break it. Christ didn't break it, but received the wrath of the Father as though he did. You see that? You broke the law. You deserve wrath. Christ didn't break the law, yet he received wrath. All the cursings, all the punishment, all the condemnation was placed on him on that cross as he was crushed by his father for his people. And that's what you deserve. That's what we deserve, right? We deserve the, all the cursings, all the punishment, all the condemnation, yet he took all of it. There is no option A or B. The law demands wrath for you and me. That's it. Yet Christ stepped in and took it. He propitiated for it. Remember that? When we went over that? He propitiated means he took the wrath. He soaked it up. He soaked up the wrath like a sponge. That was due to you. He appeased God. Why? There's a couple reasons. First, so that God would be glorified by displaying His love, mercy, and grace to a people. That's why Christ died. Because so God the Father would be glorified by displaying His love, mercy, and grace to a people. That's not it, though. There's a second reason too. Uh, there's more than that. The second reason, because He loves you. And I know in our Reformed world, we probably get sick of these churches only focused on that latter one, right? All they ever talk about is God loves you, God loves you, God does this for you, God does that for you. He loves you so much. He died so He could just, He, he couldn't live without you, right? As though everything God does, He does for you. You know what that's called? That's called idolatry. If everything God does is for you, it's idolatry. You are all of a sudden an idol. Which is sin, right? He does everything for his own glory. This is, we know this, right? Everything God does is for his own glory. Even him displaying his love toward you in creating you and making atonement for you is for his glory first and foremost. 
However, let's not swing that pendulum all the way to the other side. The one, some modern day evangelicals want to swing it all the way to, it's only love, God's love, that's all, all, it's, all about is love. Let's not swing that pendulum all the way to the other side and forget that God does love us. The scriptures clearly teach that, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. How about, but God commended his love toward us. He commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God does love you. And his love is not some fickle love like we're used to. We're, we're used to this fickle love that you can fall in love with somebody one day and you're out of love with them the next day. You hear about people that get divorces and they said they fell out of love with one another. That's ridiculous, right? First, they probably weren't in love to begin with. The reason they probably got married is because the person loved themselves so much that they found somebody that pleased them. And when they stopped pleasing them, all of a sudden they're out of love. Right? But it's all about love for self. Also, love isn't just a feeling. Love is laying down your life for someone else even when they aren't providing anything in return. When did God commend His love toward us? When we were lovely and worthy. And, or while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God commended his love toward us while we were yet sinners. Not when we were worthy. Not when we were lovely. We were the exact opposite of that. We weren't worthy of love, yet God loved us. And that doesn't change by your actions either. God loves you just as much today as he did on the day that he saved you. Nothing's ever changed. That love has been steady the whole way. Has not changed one for one second. Just think about this. God loves me just as much, even when I'm in the act of sinning, as he did from before the foundations of the world. His love's never changed. Nothing has changed with him. Our God is what they call immutable. Unchanging. Never changing. It says Jesus Christ is saying yesterday, today, forever, right? Never changing. That was all more of a parenthesis about God's love for his elect. But the topic at hand, though, is that the law works wrath. And if you don't trust Christ today, you're in jeopardy of perishing forever under His wrath because you have broken His law. You are exceedingly sinful and rightfully deserve this wrath of God. The next point is the law means transgression. <clears throat> Our last phrase there in verse 15 says, because the law works wrath, for there is no for where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now this I think could confuse some people. But let me tell you first what it's not saying. This is not saying that when the Mosaic law didn't exist, there were no sin. There was no sin. That's what some may see in this text, alright? But that's not what it's saying. We know from the previous chapter that all have sinned 
and fallen short of the glory of God. All meaning everybody from before the Mosaic Law appeared. Turn up to Romans chapter 5. We see in this chapter it helps us demonstrate this as well. 5.12. Jason, we read 12 and 13. Therefore, just as sin came to the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sins. For sin indeed was in the world, before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sin was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. You notice there, sin was in the world before the Mosaic Law. Right? That's what it says. By one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world. So there was sin in the world before the Mosaic Law. Why? Because there was still law. Right? There was still law there. It just wasn't the, the written code yet. What our text is saying is that before that written law, there was sin, but it became transgression. Which are pretty much the same thing when we look, when we look at the New Testament. Transgression being that you knowingly violated God's written law. Though. That's what it's saying. Transgression is, is spoken of as a line that you crossed. That line came when God gave the law to Moses, and then people knowingly just crossed that line. There was still sin, because Adam sinned, right? As I already mentioned, Cain sinned. And it wasn't just in their conscience, but it was written for us, and we knowingly disregarded it and broke it. That's the transgression there. This is why Paul says earlier that law, by the law comes the knowledge of sin. Sin was already there, but when the law came, we knowingly broke it. Obviously, I can go through the whole list of Old Testament saints before the Mosaic Law came and see their sins. Because God doesn't hide their sins from us, does He? He shows us their sins. But we don't have time for that. Look down at verse 20 in chapter 5 there. It says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Will you read that in ESV? 520. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. You see that? The law wasn't given for justification. But what does it say? That the offense might abound. That the offense might increase. To show the exceeding fullness of sin. That's really what it is, right? The law came in to show the exceedingfulness of sin, that the sin would increase. 
the Mosaic law came about made the Mosaic law that came about made man's sin to abound, to increase. Why? Because there was more law. More law doesn't mean more obedience, does it? It means more disobedience. This is not to say that we shouldn't have a law at all, because we should. It says in, um, I think it's in Titus where it says, we've looked at it multiple times, it just leaves my head right now, it says the law is good if used lawfully. So it's good to have a law. You shouldn't be allowed to kill, right? You shouldn't be allowed to murder. But guess what? Murders happen every day, do they not? The, the law didn't stop it, did it? He gave a law that says, thou shalt not murder. People still murder every single day. Is there a country on earth where it's okay to murder? Actually, there is. We live in it. We murder children by the tune of over 2,000 a day. Y'all think about that? Because they're not out of the womb yet. Over 2,000 a day. I was looking at all the statistics on that. I think it said one every 37 seconds or something like that. One child every 37 seconds is killed in our nation. That's just in America. And it's fine because we don't call them children, right? We call them zygotes. So now all of a sudden it's fine to murder. We just changed the definition of them. God gave us a law about that, though, didn't he? Did he not? It says in Genesis 9, 6, Whosoever sheds man's blood, sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Then he tells us why. For the image of God made he man. God made us in his image. Therefore, you don't have a right to take the life of another. Even if it's inconvenient. It's more convenient not to have the responsibility of that child, though, right? So we disregard that. And unfortunately, a lot of these women end up regretting it. But it's done. It's too late when it's done. And we have a law. We do have a law against murder in the United States. And that's a good thing. We just chose, choose not to enforce it for somebody that's still in the womb. Back to our point here, though. The law doesn't equate to obedience. And more law does just the opposite. Why? Because we humans hate law. And our heart's desire is not to be obedient, but to be disobedient. The unregenerate heart hates obedience. That's what it says in Romans 8, 7. It says the carnal mind cannot subject itself to the law of God. Can't. Not a chance. If you're unregenerate, you can't obey God. You don't even want to. So the law was not given for our justification before God, but to show that we'll keep sinning even in the face of law. And when more law is added, it just increases our sin and transgression. And by increasing sin and transgression, what does it also do? It increases wrath. With that said, I want to go to my last point here. It's the cup of sin. Turn with me to Matthew 23.
23 to verse 29 through 32. Jakes, when you get there, will you read 29 through 32? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of prophets and decrow the, the monuments of the righteousness, saying, If we have lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been taken apart with them in their shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you, thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the, the prophets. Philip, when he measures up our fathers. You can talk, pick up what it's saying there. He's saying, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Your fathers killed the prophets, and y'all are doing the same thing. And if you were back there when they were alive, you would have done the same thing. You would have killed the prophets too. And you know what? This is proved, right? A few chapters later, when they killed the Son of God. But what does he say? Fill ye up the measure of your fathers. What's he talking about there? He's talking about a cup. This was a measure of sin. They, it, they were filling it up like a cup. They had this cup and they were filling it up with their sins. They had a cup of sin that they were to fill up. And when it was full, it was time to cut them off. That's what God's telling them. In other words, there is a certain amount of sin that God has not only allowed, but that he ordained before he would cast them off this planet and into hell. There's a certain amount of sin given to you and once you hit that sin, you're cast off in, into hell. Turn back to Genesis 15. We'll see another verse on this. And verse 16. 15, 16. It says, But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. You see the same picture there? The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Fill up the measure of your fathers. Fill up that cup. That cup that you have, you're filling it up. This is what John Gill says in uh, Genesis 15, 16. He says, Wicked people have a measure of iniquity to fill up, which is known of God. Some are longer, some are quicker in filling it up during which time God waits patiently and bears with them. But when it is completed, He stays no longer, but takes vengeance on them. That should terrify people. Your next sin could be your last. You may fill up your cup today. And it's time for the Almighty to take you off into eternity. Unbeliever. Are there any unbelievers here? How full is your cup? You don't know. How full is the cup? I don't know. Oh, but you think there's plenty of time to repent and believe, right? I have plenty of time. My cup's not even close to being full, right? I mean, Adolf Hitler had six million Jews, so maybe I had at least six million sins before my cup is full, right? You don't know. I don't know. One knows, and it's God. Not today, Pastor. I have tomorrow, right? God's given me tomorrow. I'm young. I haven't lived long enough yet. I still have plenty of living to do. I still have plenty, plenty of sins to commit, right? 
God wouldn't take me today. As though young people don't die every day. The scriptures tell us not to boast of tomorrow. For you don't know what today will bring. It also says our lives are but a vapor. And it says that they are of the flower of the grass. That as soon as it comes up, it's, it's scorched by the sun and it withers. Here today, gone tomorrow. Today could be your last day here. I say that this is real. Today could be our, any one of our last day here on earth today. That's it. And guess what? If it is your last day today, earth will still continue tomorrow as though you never existed. It's time to repent and believe now, not tomorrow, while the gospel is being preached to you now. Why your sins could be paid for. And while the Savior is calling you through me today, right now, don't wait until tonight. Remember I quoted the verse earlier, Thou fool, tonight your soul is required of thee. You don't know you have tomorrow. Your cup could be almost full. So repent and believe in Christ. Our application here. First, we should hate sin. This should be very, very real for us as Christians. The law works wrath because we break the law. We should hate that. We should absolutely hate that. More than Sophia hates broccoli. Or a man that hates onions. Or I hate Michigan. <laughs> hate it with every fiber of our being. Sin is what causes all of our discord. You're like, why are me and my spouse fighting? I can tell you. Sin. Why are my children listening? Sin. Why am I dying? Sin. Why do I wake up feeling like junk today? I feel fine, but I'm just saying. <coughs> Proverbially, I guess. Sin is what causes all that. Sin causes all of it. Not only that, but sin is why our Savior bled on that tree. Do you love Christ today? Well, then you should hate your sin. If you love Christ yet, you hate sin. And you hate the sin around you. And you hate the sin that's still dwelling inside you, even as a believer. You must fight it. It's a defeated foe, but it's still alive, right? If only we fight because we hated it. When you see a friend or loved one suffering, what does it make you think of? I mean, you spoke about this yesterday. What does it make us think? When a friend or a loved one is suffering, does it make us think of sin in general? Maybe, yes, maybe they have sin in their life. Why they have this suffering? Maybe they did something stupid and it caused this suffering. But it's because of indwelling sin. It all stems from the sin of Adam and has passed unto us all, right? We already read the verse there in chapter 5, Romans chapter 5. You can't say you love righteousness and not hate sin. Let me add this as well. 
you should first hate your own sins worse than others. Or to put it this way, you should first cast out the beam out of your own eye before you go trying to remove a speck out of somebody else's eye. By saying this, though, I don't think... I'm not trying to say that just because you commit a certain sin, you can't help a brother or sister out with that sin. It's that you're sitting back in judgment, judging this person, saying, I can't believe you did this, when you're doing the same thing. We can still come alongside and say, yes, I struggle with the same thing. This is what I've tried. What have you tried? How do I get rid of it? Did you get rid of it? How did you fight it? We're to come together in this fight. Y'all know this, right? Then why aren't we honest with one another about our sins? Oftentimes we act like we don't sin, right? We like to play that stained glass master ray. That we come in here and everything's perfect, right? I don't struggle with that sin. I never struggle with that sin. That sin doesn't affect me. Oh, I'm perfect. None of us say that, but we like to act like it. The reality is, though, you may act like this, but you ain't fooling anybody. Because we all know. Because we all fight with the same sins. We all struggle with the same sins. We, we all fail and fall on our face and need somebody else to help, help us along and pick us up. So we should confess our sins to one another. That's the New Testament command. It's a command we don't like, though, do we? We don't like going to brother and sister and saying, I'm struggling. I failed this week. I failed doing this. I didn't do this. I didn't read the word. I wasn't in prayer. I've been thinking stupid thoughts all week. Help me. Pray for me. Come alongside me. We don't do that, do we? Why? Because <laughs> you might see me as weak. Because you might see me as beggarly, right? Isn't that what we are? I mean, seriously, as Christian, isn't that what you are? You're weak and beggarly. It says, God had chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. I'm one of the weak things. And so are you. I'm a beggarly coming to Christ. And so are you. We don't have it all together. And don't, don't live by that lie like we do. God has shown me, honestly, multiple times in the physical and the spiritual that I'm weak. Now, yeah, I might be bigger than most people, but God has shown me with an ant this big, one ant, and brought me to my knees. Literally. Crawling. Because I couldn't use my leg. From one ant. Now what's he doing too? Tell me, God... God is in control of everything, is he not? Is he sovereign? When COVID comes out, can we see it? If we can see it, it'd be easy to say, ooh, stay away from that person. They're breathing green stuff out of their mouth. <laughs> we can't see. It's, a, it's something so small that we can't see, but it's bringing people to, to their knees, right? <clears throat> Guess what all that is a result of? Sin. And not necessarily, like I'm, not necessarily I sin, therefore I got COVID. <laughs> That's a result of the fall. Sickness, disease, death, result of the fall. 
which was was sin. If there's no sin, there'll be no sickness. There'll be no death. And praise God, that day is coming, right? But in the meantime, while we're here, we should be fighting sin and working to see others saved from their sin with a hatred of sin. My last point is quick. Since we are not promised of tomorrow, even as believers, how shall we live? I've been thinking about this recently and had a little conversation with Jason about this. But are we living with fear of the future? I mean, in our day-to-day, it'd be easy to fear the future, right? We don't know what's going to happen. What's going to happen tomorrow? What's going to happen next week? What's going to happen next month? It'd be easy to fear all that. But my reoccurring question to myself and to you this morning is why do we fear the future? Remember two weeks ago when I kept on, I kept on mentioning, is Christ still on the throne? As long as he's still there, we, have, we should have no fear. I have nothing to worry about as long as Christ is on his throne. But why do we fear the future? First, are you given a future? Somebody show me one verse in here that says you're given a future. Here on earth. God only gives you today. So what are you doing today? Second thing, who holds your future? If you have one. If you're given 10 more years, who's, who's, who's given you those 10 more years? It's because you ate healthy and you exercised and you did well. People like that die all the time too. The one that holds our future is the omnipotent, sovereign, loving, and merciful God. Nothing will come to you that hasn't went across to his desk first, right? Remember Job. Satan wasn't allowed to just go get, go get Job. Satan went to God. And God said, "You look, behold my servant Job. It went across, it went to God first. To quote Martin Luther, he said, the devil is God's devil. God is sovereign. He owns him. Satan isn't omnipotent, and I know we often think this, but I hope you don't, that Satan is also not omnipresent. I know we all think that, because Satan's here, Satan's there. Satan's not everywhere. He's not omnipresent. He's not God. It says in Scripture, it says he walks to and fro. And even when he comes for you, he comes as a defeated foe. Satan's been defeated. Unless we don't believe. When, when it says that the, the seed of the woman shall crush the head of the serpent, Christ shall crush the head of the serpent. And what did he do on the cross? And through his resurrection, he crushed the head of the serpent. Satan has been defeated. He walks about as a defeated foe. It says the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. I'm known, it's sad that I, when I just drove to Ohio or Virginia or wherever. I've never heard somebody say this, but I've already I've been thinking about this for a long time. But it says the gates of hell shall not prevail. How often do you see people going into war with gates? They don't. I mean, you're not walking into war with a gate like this, are you? No, the gates they don't move. They're defensive. They're not offensive weapons. They're defensive. So don't worry about that. Stand firm in Christ, right? And resist him, and he will flee. 
And don't worry about him coming. You're protected by the Lord of glory. So fight the fight today and boast not of tomorrow, right? To quote one of my favorite theologians, Master Uwe. Just kidding. <laughs> That's a good cartoon, though. He said, <laughs> Yesterday is history. This is funny, I'm using this in the sermon. Yesterday is history, tomorrow is a mystery, and today is a gift. That's why they call it the present, right? That's all you have. Live in the present. Not by your past failures. Not with worry or anxiety for the future, but with the realization that God is sovereign. And he, has He ever failed to take care of you? Has God ever failed one day to take care of you, Christian? Never. So let's go serve our King with this in our forefronts. Amen.